Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. And then day three, the promise happened, broke open before everything. You see, that's how it is in our lives. Sometimes we have expectations that God is going to work um, in a certain time frame. We have expectations on how he is going to work or how he should work or how we should act or how people should act. And so sometimes we get so disappointed. Sometimes our problems are our own expectations. And, you know, Jesus, before all of that happened, you know, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, and he prayed to his father knowing what he was going to suffer, like I talked about last night, and he said, Father, he said, Abba, actually, because he had this relationship with God, Abba, Daddy, Father, can you take this cup from me? But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so we need to hear both things, that we can pray and we can always ask God to move on our behalf and to take something. But then the next part of that is, but Lord, not my will, but your will. It's a beautiful picture to us of surrender. But if he had not surrendered to the will of God, what we just watched would not have happened on the third day. And so it is with us. I don't I'm not talking that we're Christ in resurrection, but I'm talking about with our lives. As we come to the Father with our cup, as we come to the Father with our hardships, as we come to the Father with our expectations, the other part of that prayer is, but not my will, but your will be done. If we live according to our expectations, and most women know about expectations. I mean, we have expectations on how people should act, how our spouses should act, how our kids should behave, how our houses should look, what we deserve. I mean, expectations are really big thing, especially with women. But if we live according to our expectations, we will be led only by our emotions. Contrary to that, if we live in daily surrender, then we will live led by the Spirit. Live by your expectations, you'll be led by your emotions. Live in daily surrender, you will be led by the Spirit. Daily surrender isn't something confusing. It's simple. It's as simple as that prayer. Lord, today I give you this day and I give you everything that I have going on today. I give you my heart today. I give you my expectations today. I give you my problems today. And oh, by the way, that one problem that is like really troubling me, if you could just take that, that would be cool. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Have your will and your way in my life, Lord. I'm fresh on the heels of the whole expectation journey. So many of you have been asking me, well, so what happened? So you bought that house, and then what happened? I, I really must have had 30 of you ask me that, so I decided just to start off with that tonight. <laughs> so this is the truth that we need to understand about our lives. You commit your life to Christ. The Word of God says that you are his, and as his, it says that he leads you and guides you, and that he is with you. God is always working behind the scenes in our lives, always. We cannot see it, but his sovereign hand and his plan for us is always working. We are living out our lives day by day, and he is working writing our storyline, and he is a really good writer. He knows where he's going with things. So yeah, it didn't turn out as we planned. 
We have seven bedrooms and six bathrooms, six and a half. <laughs> and we're two little retired people. Seven bedrooms, six bathrooms. I'm not going to tell you how many square feet, but I already told you we bought the house for the purpose of ministry. And we were convinced. And the whole, the whole trail to get this house was the craziest trail that you could even imagine. We bought the house. We put, our, we put the offer on the house. It got accepted over three other families. We um, put our house up for sale in the Bay Area. Houses were selling like hotcakes in our neighborhood. We lived in a beautiful neighborhood. And nobody looked at our house. We had a beautiful house in the Bay Area. Nobody looked at our house. Nobody could believe it. No one was looking at our house. So we lost this house that we thought we were buying for ministry. We lost it. We had to forfeit it. We had to give it up. I was so confused. Lord, I thought, you know, when I walked into this house, it was bigger than what I thought, but it was all the ministry dreams that I thought I had. I walked in and I cried in that house. And so when we didn't get it, it's like, really? So anyway, so we kept our house on the market for a little bit, basically just because we were busy. And um, then we decided, no one's looking at our house still. This is bizarre. We're not supposed to move. So we're going to take our house off the market. The day we take our house off the market, um, we find out that our house sold. <laughs> like, okay, well, our house sold. I guess we are moving to Arizona. But ding, we lost that one house. And so we switched gears and figured it wasn't the Lord, that he was protecting us, and that he didn't have this big ministry plan for us. I mean, what were we thinking? Who are we? You know, la, la, la. Anyway, so... The next day, we have 17 days to find a replacement home because our house sold and these people wanted to be in it. And in 20 days, we had 17 days to find a replacement home. And it was a Monday. And I had just gotten home from Colorado for the weekend from officiating one of my dearest friend's uh, funeral. She died in her young 50s of breast cancer. And when she was dying and when she was on hospice and we had lost the house, she said to me, you're going to have that house. There's a purpose for you to have that house. I go, no, no, I'm thinking she's on, you know, she's on morphine or something. I go, no, honestly, Lori, like, we're not going to have that house. We lost the house already. They already resold the house. She goes, you're going to have that house. Just, you're having the house. And so she died a few weeks later, and it was on the day of her actual funeral that our house sold. The next day when I got back in town, um, I get this Facebook Messenger that I never check. Now I do all the time, but I never did then. Facebook Messenger message from the owner of the house that we lost. And she goes, I tracked you down on Facebook. I think this is, might not be ethical, but I just wondered, did you sell your house? And so I get back to her and I go, we just sold our house. We have 17 days to find a replacement home. And she goes, great, because we had sold our house and their loan didn't go through and our house is available again. And I said, I'm sorry, I think that maybe we weren't supposed to buy your house. And so we're not going to get, you know, we're not in the market for your house anymore. And she goes, no, 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 don't do anything till you talk to us. And she was insisting on this four-way conversation with her husband who was working in New York, her in Arizona, me and my husband. So we get on this call and literally my husband said to them, you know, well, we, you know, we thought we wanted to do this house for ministry. So we were willing to make that kind of investment, blah, blah, blah. And he said, the bottom line is, is because it didn't work out that way that we're not going to pay more than X, Y, and Z for a house in Arizona. It was a lot less than we were going to originally buy the house for. Mr. New York said, we can do that. We're talking, like, we're talking like a lot of money that he said, sure, we can do that. And I'm like, you can do what? And he goes, we will take that price for the house. So we ended, God protected us all right, we ended up buying the house at really way below market value. So you're wondering, so where was God in this? Because then the pandemic happened and you haven't used your house for ministry. Now you know why I was expecting and I was so frustrated, right? 
Well, I'll tell you. Our kids that lived in Arizona lost their jobs during the pandemic. They lost their jobs. My daughter-in-law was pregnant, and they had two kids. And they tried to hold on to their house. And they finally realized we foreclose or we sell, so they sold. And they needed a place to regroup. And guess what? <laughs> she had her baby at our house. We have three grandchildren now living at our house. So my son and his wife and three kids are living in our house. So that's what happened to our house. <laughs> they're buying a house. They're having a house build. It keeps getting pushed back. And if they didn't have us to live with, I really don't quite know what would happen. And I'm not, I'm not mad about those grandchildren every morning running up and saying, good morning, Grammy. I'm not mad. So they live in our basement, the basement where we were going to do ministry because there are several bedrooms and bathrooms in this basement, and that's where the Lord provided for them to live in. So I don't know what the next season is after they move out. I don't know what the next season is with this house. Maybe we even sell the house. I don't even know. This is the point. Our expectations, if they rule us, we will be too emotional about everything. But when surrender rules us, we will be spirit-led, and we will be able to roll with things. Yes, it's just like fear. We might get that initial response of disappointment and emotion, but if we turn that over to the Lord and say, you know what, I don't know what your will is in this, but I am going to trust you. And this is what we always need to remember. Last night, remember, forget not. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not his benefits. We need to remember who he is and how he loves. If you don't remember anything else when you leave, just remember, Jesus, I want to know who you are and how you love me. And secondly, that he is always working in your life, behind the scenes. So when you think your prayers aren't being answered, when you think it's day one and day two and you're expecting day three but it's not happened yet, he is always working behind the scenes in your life. You can trust that. A few years back, I had a, a, like an in front of me illustration of what that might look like, and I want to share it with you. Um, before I went back into ministry after my divorce, I worked for seven years in the corporate world working for, um, I was in computer peripheral sales. And so once a year I had to go to this uh, trade show in Las Vegas called Comdex. And it's computer stuff, and so it's really, it's not cool computer stuff. So it's like mostly guys, um, nerdy techie computer guys, it's like, it was no fun for me whatsoever at all. Now, if any of you have ever worked a trade show, this is what it looks like. You are up at the crack of dawn because you have to get to a manufacturer's breakfast, like really early, like maybe six, and then you usually have to swing by another manufacturer's breakfast, and then you have to go on the trade show floor all day long, and it is exhausting, and you have to smile all day because you're representing a product, and then at night you have to go to manufacturer's dinners, receptions, and parties, and you get in your hotel room really late, and then you have to start the whole thing over the next day. Might be fun if it was a fun industry, but the industry I was in was not fun at all. So I was starting to get sick. I was there a couple days, and so I asked my boss on this one day, like, can I not go to the manufacturer's party tonight? And he said, no, no, this is your biggest account. You have to go. But I'm not feeling good. You have to go. Suck it up, Debbie. You have to go. 
all right, so I didn't know it was a mystery party. I didn't know what was the mystery about it. They took us, bust us out to the, some museum, or I don't know. They bust us out somewhere. All I know is their big thing about the party was they had three impersonators. They had Elvis, they had um, Robin Williams, and they had James Dean. And this was supposed to be cool, I guess. And I was just like so bored with the whole thing. And I couldn't leave because the bus leaves at midnight. I'm like stuck. I am stuck. And for whatever reason, at this party, Elvis kept trying to chit-chat with me. And I'm like, really don't want to chit-chat with Elvis. I really don't. And I kept kind of just like getting away from Elvis. And anyway, so I finally, I had it with the whole thing. I just went, they give you all these wonderful goodies. I had this goodie bag with expensive prizes and gifts that they give you. And so I'm sitting with a little folding chair at the entrance waiting for the bus to come about an hour early with my little gifts little gift bag and I'm kind of nodding off and the bus comes everybody's going out to the buses I'm the first one on my bus back to the Las Vegas Hilton I go to the very back of the bus because I don't want anybody to bother me because I'm a really sweet and kind Christian woman so just don't get near me so I go to the very back of the bus and I put my gift bag next to me so that surely nobody would even consider getting near me. And I close my eyes and the engine's going and it's starting to um, rumble and hum and I'm so excited the day is almost over. Thank God this day is over when I hear the hydraulics of the door of the bus open. And I don't know why I thought this because he was not on our bus coming over but I thought to myself, oh God, don't let it be Elvis. <laughs> And I looked up, and guess who it was? In his white rhinestone glory, Elvis was walking on the bus, and I put my head down. And I thought, surely, like, he's not going to come anywhere near me. He, no kidding. He walked down the whole aisle of the bus, all the way to the end seat where I had my little gift bag. And in his stage voice, he said, ma'am, is anyone sitting there? I wanted to go gag me. You know you're not Elvis. But I didn't because I'm a nice Christian woman. And so I took my bag and I put it on my lap. I go, no, sure, go ahead. And I turned my head to look out the window and I'm like, oh, Jesus, what do you say to an Elvis impersonator? And I felt quickened in my spirit like the Lord said, be open, be open, be open. How do you be open to an Elvis impersonator? I'm looking out the window thinking this, be open. So I think be open means I have to have conversation with him. So I'm having conversation with him, little light chit-chat. He's Eddie, not Elvis. Really? I thought you were Elvis. No, he. And so anyway, so I say to him, so are there ever any uh, Elvis conventions uh, in Las Vegas? And, and so he said, well, actually, next year, to commemorate the anniversary of Elvis's death, there's going to be a week-long Elvis convention here. I mean, there's going to be Elvises from all over the world. I'm thinking in my mind, well, doesn't that sound like something I'm not coming to? But anyway... <laughs> I said to him, oh, yes, on August, and I said the date, and I said the year when Elvis died. And he said, oh, you must be a big Elvis fan. I go, no, actually, see, I almost died the day that Elvis died. I was in a near-fatal car accident, and when I was in the hospital, and they were trying to save me, they thought I was out of it, but I could hear them all talking about Elvis being dead, and I wanted to scream. I wanted to go, he's dead already. Save me. <laughs> <clears throat> And I go, so I remember that date, and the date that Elvis died, because it was the day that God spared my life through good doctors and getting to the hospital in time. And so that took us from, he said, the angels must have been watching over you. Hmm. He's talking about angels now. 
And so I go, well, tell me more. What do you mean by that? And he goes, oh, well, I'll tell you. I'm just going to tell. I'm going to put it out there. He goes, here's the deal. He goes, um, like, I'm not religious or anything. He goes, but I'm on a journey. I'm on a, I guess, just maybe it's a spiritual quest. Maybe it's a spiritual journey. I don't really know. He knows nothing about me. He doesn't know I'm a Christian. He goes, see, I have been going to every church. I've been going to Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Christians, Charismatic, Pentecostal, the whole thing. I've been going to everything because I'm really trying to find God, and I'm trying to figure out if Jesus is real. And I go, what did you find? He goes, well, I find like I kind of don't trust anybody because I think I have trust issues. But he goes, you know, I listen to this one radio broadcast. And he goes, and I don't trust radio preachers either, but every time this guy opens his mouth and the broadcast starts and he starts talking about Jesus, something inside me feels like, like I want to listen and so I can't turn him off. He goes, so here's my thing. He goes, I know it's going to sound probably crazy, but I'm on this quest with God, and I have a prayer. And I have put my prayer out there, and if God answers this prayer specifically, I am going to know that Jesus is real because he answered my prayer, and I'm going to become a Christian. And I go, really? What is your prayer? And he goes, I prayed that I would meet somebody that knows this man I'm listening to on the radio personally. And it has to be verified that they know him personally and if I meet that person, because how random would that be, he's telling me, then I will know that God heard that prayer, that I would meet that person, I met that person, I would know that it was time to say yes to Jesus. And I mean, I'm like, I can almost hear like, you know, heaven's drum roll in my ear, because I don't know that many people, but I had a feeling that this was one of those moments that God was working behind the scenes, bringing us all together to this moment. And I said, well, who is he? And he goes, oh, some cat from Orange County named Chuck Smith. And I go, oh, so the broadcast word for today. And he looks scared. <laughs> he goes, have you heard of him? And I go, he was my pastor. He goes, here's my next question. Do you know him personally? And I go, very. And he goes, so he's legit? And I go, uh-huh. And he just, he was beside himself. And he was just ready to cry. And I looked at him. I go, Eddie, listen to me. Here's the deal. God brought a woman from San Francisco, California, who did not want to come to Comdex this year, but had to come under duress by her boss, who did not want to come to the party tonight, but had to come because it's my biggest account, who actually you irritated me to death at the party, and I didn't even want to talk to you again, but here we are sitting by each other because God, Eddie, is answering your prayer, and he's calling you to himself. And the bus got to Las Vegas Hilton, and everybody got up, and, and we started walking out and I looked up after I got out of the bus and he had tears his makeup was just staining his white rhinestone suit and I looked up at him and I go are we done and he he couldn't talk he just shook his head no and I'm a married woman in Las Vegas at 1 a.m. in the morning with Elvis so I'm like not sure what do I do so I look all around, and I, you know, 1 a.m. in the morning in Vegas is like 1 p.m. in the afternoon. So there is a bench in front of the Las Vegas Hilton. So I motion to the bench. We sit in front of the Las Vegas Hilton, and Eddie accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So I could not wait to get home to tell my husband. I got to, I mean, to my hotel room. I got to my hotel room. I'm oblivious. I'm oblivious. He's holding down the fort with four kids, and I'm, like, calling him at 2 a.m., Ray, Ray. I led Elvis to Jesus. And like, I'm not really a drinker. And so he says, Debbie, have you been drinking? And I'm like, no, it's real. I led Elvis to Jesus. He goes, but he's dead. And so then I told him the story. But why am I telling you the story? This is why I'm telling you the story. Because God is always at work in human lives. 
He's always at work. He was connecting the dots. He answered Eddie's prayer. He brought somebody who knew Chuck Smith. He could have brought anybody, but he just kind of converged us all together. Truth be told, I love that saying, truth be told. <laughs> truth be told, I feel like God knew that I would just tell this story all over the place so that people would know that when you pray to God that he hears you and you not, might not get an answer today, you might not get an answer tomorrow, and the answer might not even be what you think that you should get or you want to get, but he will answer, and he will always answer for your good. In Matthew, when I was reading this, this morning in Matthew, when Jesus said, don't worry about your life, it says that you have a heavenly father. He knows what you need of. And then it goes on in Matthew 7, the next chapter. He tells us to ask, to seek, and to knock, and the door will be open. So he says he already knows what we need before we ask, but he still invites us to ask. Because you see, this is a God that wants to have relationship with us. He wants us to be part of the whole thing. Even though he knows what we need before we ask him, he wants to hear us just like you would want to have your children tell you what's going on with them and what they need. He invites us into this relationship of such intimacy. So let me ask you this, though. What if your cup, what if your problem isn't a thing or a circumstance, but what if you have problems with people? What if your problem is a person? That gets a little trickier, doesn't it? Yeah. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, of course, it was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And then he said that we are to love others as ourselves. So for Jesus, the greatest thing for us was that we would love him and that we would love others. How do we love him? We've been talking about that. Part of loving him is that we live a surrendered life. We live an open-handed life. We live a my yes is on the table life. We live a life where I might not feel like doing this, but I will obey you and follow you into it if this is what you're calling me to do. We live a life of faith. How do we love others? It's a little bit harder because some of us get offended by other people. To be offended means that somebody has caused us difficulty, discomfort, injury, anger. They've been thoughtless. They've hurt us. But in Proverbs 19.11, it says this, that it is to one's glory to overcome an offense. It's to one's glory to overcome an offense. But what we do is we make our problems, especially with people, precious, and they poison us. What do I mean by that? We take our problems, and we give them all to Jesus, but maybe we have a one pet problem, and it's a person. It's an ex or a friend or someone at church or a parent, somebody that's really hurt us, and maybe they really deserve what we think we're giving them with the silent treatment or the mean treatment or the offended treatment. I don't know. But we take that one little pet problem, and we don't give that one to Jesus, but we give everything else to him, so we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. But that one little pet problem, we don't give to him. And I'm telling you what, if you make your problem precious, and if you hold on to it in unforgiveness and bitterness and an unwillingness, an unwillingness to let go of that offense, it's going to poison you. You're hoping to hurt them, but it's going to poison you. And not only that, the deal is, is that this is not 
in any way, shape, or form God's best for us. I want to read to you um, what it says in Luke. I sat in scripture with Luke um, in, the, in the stages of our blended family. If any of you have lived in a blended family or know much about a blended family, I want to tell you it's really hard. You have kids that don't want to be blended with other kids. They're hurt from their parents. Either a parent died or their parents got divorced. You have a new couple that are hoping for a second happily ever after, but you have in-laws, outlaws, and ex-laws, and your life is harder than you ever anticipated it would ever be. In our case, we were the Brady Bunch, two boys, two girls, and we had Alice, my mom, who came to live with us, except she was ill, so I was taking care of Alice instead of her helping us with the kids. So we had a crazy life. And we were in and out of court, in and out of court, in and out of court. I had every reason, every reason to be very offended. And I held on to offense. And I felt that I was justified. And I felt I needed to have my boundaries. And I needed to stand up for myself. And I needed to be strong. And I needed to be victorious, all in the name of hate. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be real. Until I started sitting in scripture. And I could not get away from this. The words of Jesus. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Really? Wait, this can't be Jesus. Jesus loves me. Why would he want me to do good to people that hate me? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. We think that's the golden rule. Our culture calls that the golden rule. It are the words of Jesus. We are to do unto others as we would want. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Right. How many of us really do that? We do that on good days. We do that with good people. We do that when somebody hasn't offended us. Let's be real. But Jesus said we're to pray for those who mistreat you. At the time I was sitting in this passage over and over and over again to try to get it through my thick heart and my thick skull, I was a women's pastor at a church. A woman came in. She was having problems. She was in a blended family. Um, her ex-husband had a new girlfriend. She was really all in all kinds of turmoil. And she said, I just don't know what to do. So I said, well, let, let's just look at this. What, let's read this. What do you think Jesus would want you to do? She goes, well, I think right here it says I need to pray. They're mistreating me. I need to pray for them. And I go, why don't we just start there? Because I didn't want to give her no pat answers. I wanted her to see it. Why don't we start there? And she goes, okay, I'll start. Dear Jesus, I just pray that you would take them both and send them straight to hell. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I don't really think that's what we had in mind, but it was a start. You prayed. <laughs> Jesus goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those with whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful as your father is merciful. What do we do when our problems are people? I'll tell you just quickly. 
memorize Luke 6, those verses in between 27 and 36. He said, be merciful as your father is merciful. Then go to Romans 12, second half of Romans 12, where it says, as much as it lies within you, live at peace with all people. Sometimes you can't live at peace with people because you've done everything as much as it lies within you, but they are resisting peace. They are resisting an olive branch. They are resisting your prayers or your kindness. You can't do anything about that, but you better make sure that you're doing as much as you can within you to love people and to treat them how you would want to be treated. Now, the reason I started with expectations, again, is because of this. We have expectations of people, and sometimes our expectations are very unrealistic, and our expectations will cause us to be emotional. I had a lot of expectations of being married to a pastor. I felt that he should have known better than what he did to the family, what he did to the church. And I'm not saying I was wrong about that. He was a pastor. He has a certain responsibility before God. But as I moved on in my walk with the Lord and with my life in my new marriage that was complicated enough as it is, there came a day when the Lord said, you have to forgive your ex-husband. Well, no, like, <laughs> clearly, Jesus, this is so funny what we do. Like, here's the word of God, you know, and, and we hear it, we read it in the word. God speaks to us. Like, oh, no, no, clearly, I, like, have an out on this one because, you know, I really did this. Because, you know, he was a pastor and he should have known better. This is what God spoke to my heart tenderly. Be merciful as I am mercy, merciful because pastors are people first. Oh, Okay, so you're not holding the pastor card up to him. You're dealing with him based on the people card. Yes, and you're going to forgive him based on the fact that he's a broken person just like you, and you have to let go. So you see, so often when we have a problem and we hold on to it, it poisons us. It makes us think differently. It makes us think ugly. It causes us to be depressed. But when we look to see how God says we should handle it, and when we say, I can't do that, but I know that you can in and through me, then we start to see God working in our life in the most miraculous of ways. I would like to say that that day I said, okay, Jesus, I'm right on board. Let's go with this. Yeah, he was a pastor. Woo, forgive, forgive, forgive. I didn't do that. I grumbled that I didn't want to. But not my will, but your will. I will, but I don't want to, and I can't. I, I, I don't have the strength. You need to help me. And he did. And sometimes forgiveness is an initial decision. It's not forgetting, but it's an initial decision that leads us down a path of letting go. In Lamentations, it's like all about focus. In Lamentations, Jeremiah had gone through a lot. And he says here, he starts off uh, Lamentations 3 with, I'm a man who has seen affliction. So he's starting now from this really negative spiral. And then he says in verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I mean, you know, it was all real, but he's just like in it. Like I'm, I'm trying to encourage you to sit in scripture. He was sitting in his gall. I remember it, the bitterness and gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. When he remembered it, when he sat in the junk, when he focused on it, his soul was downcast, disturbed, depressed. But then it says, yet, 
This I call to mind. So now he made a switch. When he sat in his turmoil, he was depressed, discouraged, disturbed. But when he switched the channel in his mind, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, so now he's going to talk to himself, the Lord is my portion and cup, therefore I will wait for him. So first he's in his mess and he's depressed. But then he switches the channel and he looks up and he goes, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope, the steadfast love of the Lord. And he's going to focus on that. And when he focuses on that, his countenance changes. And he not only has hope, but now he's talking to himself. He's having good talking to himself instead of bad talking to himself. Because I want to tell you, you're going to leave here and I want to tell you something. You have an enemy. Second Peter 5, 7 that he says that he's like a lion who is roaring, roaming about, seeking to devour. He's after you. But God is victorious over you. But you can still give him place. You can still give entryway just to the harassment. He can't do anything to you. He's like in a, tries to gum you to death. You know, I have these two little dogs that we moved into this house. And the people before us left some of their giant stuffed animals. And they had this big stuffed lion. Really big. And my grandchildren, you know, that lived in, in Arizona were thrilled that they left these animals. But we wanted to keep our little dogs who sometimes have problems going where they're not going to go. Like, I know you might understand if you have dogs. Last year's are perfect, pretty perfect and polished dogs. Mine aren't. Even my dogs are broken messes. But anyway, so we didn't want to put a gate going down to our basement. So we just took this animal that they were scared of, this lion. And we put it like right at the stairway and they would not go near those stairs. They would start trotting over there and they'd be like, <laughs> and it was hilarious because we knew it was just a stuffy. It couldn't hurt them. It just, the visual of it just scared them. They thought it was something scary. Guess what? Your enemy's just like a stuffy. Like, you know what? Because God is victorious over you. He, he is making, putting this presence before you so that you'll be so afraid and you're backing up. No, no, no. And God's going, it's just a stuffy, honey. I've given you all the power to walk in victory. And so that's what we will do. We will walk in victory because you know what Romans 8 says? Such a wonderful promise for our soul. And I know it's on all kinds of, it was even on some TV show called Manifest. But Romans 8.28 is a biblical truth. And it's powerful and it's important. And 8.29 is even more important. And 8.37 through 39 are even more important. It says in Romans 8.28, For we know that in all things God is working. And he's working together for the good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things, not just the bad things, but in all things, God is always at work in your life. And then it goes down in verse 29 to say that for he foreknew, he preplanned that we would be conformed into the image of his son. So all things are working so that we can be made more like Jesus. And then it goes on to say that nothing no thing, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not life, not death, 
not calamity, not famine, not the pandemic, not COVID, nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. All things are working together for good, and no thing can separate you for the love of God. And in everything, we can become women who learn to trust him. Will you join me in that endeavor? Jesus, help me to be a woman that will trust you with everything. Help me to be a woman that has my hands open to you, not my will, but your will. Help me to be a woman that will let go of offenses by your power and strength. Help me to be a woman that will live in the love of God because that's who you are and you live inside of me. Oh, Father, I pray your word won't go void, but that it will purpose what you've planned for it to purpose in our lives. I thank you for each of us in here that you were working in our lives even this very moment. You were always working in our lives and we can take great comfort and we can take great joy in that. In your name.